electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. On day 113 of the coronavirus crisis, several southern states make plans to reopen their economies as stocks suffer a big drop. Stocks kicking off the week in the red. Stocks slide. Something's broken in the market. Uncertainty in many areas, but mostly in oil, lead to the drop. Reopening our economy today would backfire on us. But the biggest question for the market and the country remains, when will it be time to go back to work? This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Good to have you with us on this Monday night. Let's get our first look now at futures tonight. Take you right to the board. We would be higher across the board now. Dow would be higher by about 97 points, S&P and NASDAQ also in the green in what is a thin and very early trade. This comes after an historic plunge in oil. The cost to have a barrel of oil delivered in May falling into negative territory today for the first time ever. That move raised concerns about the economic damage being caused by the virus and stocks sold off as a result. The Dow falling nearly 600 points. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ were off more than 1%. Since March 23rd, though, the Dow is up 23%, 24% for the NASDAQ, 22% for the S&P. Among the leaders, Amazon up 30%, Alphabet 18%, 27% for Microsoft. But there's still a lot of uncertainty in this market beyond those names. Mike Santoli is with us live. Mike, it's good to have you with us. And those tech names that we just mentioned, those marquee ones, you wonder if they're masking the underlying weakness in a good part of the market. Yeah, there's no doubt that they're doing more than their share, Scott, to support the overall indexes. In a way, it's a very similar story to when the market was making new highs in January and February. People complained about how it was a relatively narrow market. It's been the case again in this last little stretch. I think uh, in one way, uh, perhaps it's concerning that it is uh, on a relatively narrow base that the market has made uh, at least this latest leg of this recovery rally. But on the other hand, it also there's an underlying rationale to it, which is, you know, the market is not, you know, diluting itself, so to speak, into thinking that people are going to be going out and shopping and buying cars and doing all those sort of traditional economically sensitive activities uh, anytime in the foreseeable future. But they do want to essentially respond to the fact that stocks were down a lot. They were oversold. A lot of investors panicked. And you had a very much a straight down crash market that now has uh, has bounced. And so they're hewing to those names that seem like they have some financial stability and resiliency. So to me, that's the that's a little bit of the split message uh, of this market and also raises the question of uh, how much is going to be left in those big growth stocks to really keep things going at a, at a moment when the market has seemed like it's gone a little flat in the last week or so. What do you say to those people who say to you, 
How can the market be where it is? The economy is terrible. We just mentioned this historic plunge in crude prices today, and yet the market, for all intents and purposes, hanging in there pretty well. I would say there's sort of a multi-part answer. The first is uh, the S&P 500 went down 35% in a straight line in a month's time. Um, That does account for a certain amount of economic pain that was sort of front-loaded into market prices. Now, um, we're not that far off the all-time high, so maybe it didn't, maybe it didn't register enough damage uh, in equity prices. But the other part of it is, if you look over the span of history, um, stocks do best when things are going from really bad to less bad. And it seemed to me like with all the Fed stimulus and all the, the Treasury fiscal response that we've gotten into this market, that investors have rushed to that point where they're essentially trying to be positioned for that phase when things get less bad. And obviously, we don't know if, if the market's going to be correct in this call, but uh, that, to me, explains a lot of the underlying action. Mike, we appreciate it. As always, that's Mike Santoli joining us tonight. The former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, is with us once again this evening. Dr. Gottlieb, it's nice to see you. Thanks a lot. Let's get right to the headlines. Georgia's governor saying today that state will start reopening this Friday. Gyms, fitness centers, bowling alleys, body art studios, barbers, cosmetologists, hair designers, nail salons, massage therapists. Is this a good idea? Well, it might not be the way I would prioritize reopening businesses within a state. I think it's important that every state, um, you know, have discretion to make decisions about when they start reopening the economy. I think most states should be looking to try to do that starting in May, and some states are going to be looking to doing look to do it much later in May, uh, the hard-hit states in the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic region, um, probably the Pacific Northwest. But uh, there will be some rural states that have, haven't had uh, a lot of cases that will look to start reopening activity in early May. Um, I think it's important to try to bring back some activity that gives people a sense of normalcy, reopen parks, hang nets at uh, you know, basketball courts and tennis courts, maybe allow outdoor classes for gyms things like that. But reopening indoor spaces where people congregate for purely recreational purposes, where you have a lot of shared surfaces, that should probably be later on the list. I think we should try to get people back to work earlier and prioritize that rather than reopening gyms and bowling alleys. But, you know, states are going to make individual decisions. As far as Georgia, um, they've had a pretty big epidemic. They've had 19,000 cases to date, uh, 733 deaths in that state. They're in the bottom 10 of states in terms of testing. And so one of the things that the governor said today was, that they wanted to significantly ramp their testing capability. They do have a long way to go to get testing up in that state because they are um, testing. Right now, they've tested about 0.8% of the state, which ranks them in the bottom 10 of states in the country. If you were a resident of the state of Georgia this evening, would you go to any of the business that's, uh, that I mentioned to you this coming Friday or, or thereafter? Even on Monday, they're going to continue opening uh, other places, including restaurants and theaters and private clubs. Well, you shouldn't tempt me about when I would go get a haircut if I had the option. But uh, I I think spaces where people congregate indoors for purely recreational activities um, probably should be things that open later. So indoor gyms, uh, bowling alleys, things like that, movie theaters. I think you want to prioritize those second and try to get people back at work first and reintroduce work and make sure you can do that safely. You do want to introduce some social activities, and I think a lot of things can be moved outside. So you can have, you know, gym classes outside. 
You can try to hold religious services outside. I think we should be looking to do that, allow religious services to resume with proper social distancing held outside. I think that there's opportunities to do that. Again, I wouldn't be looking to resume these activities until the beginning of May. We're still in an epidemic here in this country. We still haven't seen sustained reductions over the course of the nation as a whole, especially the places that have been hot spots. And so I think we need to start seeing uh, sustained reductions, real reductions in hospitalizations before we can start making decisions on a wide basis to start resuming um, you know, some element of normal activity here. There was another interesting story this evening, according to USC and the Los Angeles Department of, of Public Health, that the outbreak in Los Angeles County could be up to 55 times higher than previously reported. What do you make of that? Well, these were serology tests that look at exposure to the infection based on people's production of antibodies. So when you're exposed to the infection, you would produce antibodies. And they estimated that anywhere between 2 and about 5% of people that were tested um, had antibodies and had been exposed to the infection. I think that there were a lot of things that we need to look at um, very carefully about this particular survey. One, in term, one is the question of how people were enrolled in it and whether it was truly a, truly a representative sample. The other is the test itself. They assumed a specificity, an accuracy of 99.5%, I believe, on this test. That would be higher than any serology test on the market. Most of the serology tests have a specificity of about 95%. And the reason why that matters is when you have a test that isn't uh, completely accurate, probing for a low-probability event, and that low-probability event being having antibodies to the coronavirus, the error gets magnified. It anywhere from 25 to 50% of your results could be wrong if you have a low specificity test of, let's say, 95%. And so assuming the specificity of this test was more in line with what we're seeing in the market, not the super high specificity that they assumed, the super high reliability that they were assuming, that would really push the results down substantially and so it would make those results really inconclusive. So I think you need to look very carefully at this. What we really need is widespread serology tests done on a, on a broader basis with tests that have been verified by the Food and Drug Administration so we understand exactly what their sensitivity and specificity is. We don't have that yet, and so I think that all the tests that are coming out right now, they're informative, certainly, but I don't think we can draw broad conclusions based on them. You said that we currently have a, quote, loose national strategy when it comes to testing. Does the federal government, the administration, need to take a larger role in testing itself rather than putting it on the states? Well, they, they announced today that they're taking a larger role in trying to make testing equipment available to the states. And I, I think that's a wholly appropriate um, and, op, and, and timely uh, position for the federal government to be taking, trying to make sure that there's testing supplies available to the states, looking to use um, the, the muscle of the federal government to try to instigate more manufacturing of low commodity items that have, been come, that have come into short supply and really are limiting the ability of states to conduct testing. You know, the states are going to have to stand up these facilities within the states. A lot of these are run out of academic labs in the states. They're the clinical labs that the states contract with and work with. And I think the states can continue to lead the charge on that. Where the states are going to need help is on the testing supplies, where they're, they're pulling on an international supply chain for a lot of this equipment. And that's really where the federal government can help, both trying to domesticate more manufacturing here in the U.S. and also making sure that we're securing our fair share of these products from overseas. A lot of these companies are multinational companies that don't want to just supply the U.S. market but want to supply their foreign markets as well. 
But, uh, you know, if they're primarily a U.S. customer and they, they're U.S. domiciled businesses, I think they need to accommodate the U.S. customers as well and maybe even prioritize the U.S. customers. And that's someplace where the federal government could be helpful. And finally, Dr. Gottlieb, we'll bring it full, full circle, talk about the, the reopen. Do you think businesses are prepared to reopen? You have a long list of things you, you tweeted today of guidelines, essentially, that businesses should follow to reopen safely. Right. And I wrote a piece in The Wall Street Journal today outlining some of the things businesses, uh, I think, should be thinking about. I think businesses are starting to put these plans in place. But I, I would encourage all businesses to start doing this right now because it's going to take time to try to get good plans in place um, in terms of how to return workers to, to, to jobs safely and what measures to put in place in the workplace. Some of that might take some advanced planning. You're going to have to purchase certain equipment. So I think it behooves most businesses to start thinking about that right now. And you're going to see the governors roll out their plans their state plans in the coming week or two about how they plan to approach reopening. And that's going to be a pretty important guide to businesses. So it behooves businesses to start thinking about that now. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate it as always. We'll see you again soon. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us. Over the weekend, more protests popped up across the nation, calling for an immediate end to states' shelter-in-place orders. Here's what New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy said about reopening his economy too soon. Reopening our economy today would backfire on us in two respects. A large spike in COVID-19 cases and no customers at our stores because people are still fearful for their health and that of their kids and families. With us now is the former U.S. Senator and former Governor of New Hampshire, Judd Gregg. Governor, it's good to have you on the program. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. What do you make of the protests we're seeing in certain parts of the country? I think it's people's natural frustration. They want to do something. They want to get out and express themselves. Uh, but I think the governor of New Jersey has it right. I mean, this is if you move too early, it really ends up being a cut off your nose to spite your face exercise because uh, you can just simply aggravate the spread of the virus. So uh, my view is that this is a decision that governors need to make. It needs to be made in the context of each state. All, 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 every state's different. New Hampshire's a heck of a lot different than New Jersey or New York. What we open in New Hampshire and when we open things in New Hampshire isn't going to have any relationship to what happens in New York City or around metropolitan areas of New Jersey. So I think it's, it's really important that each governor uh, make these decisions and design them, specifically tailor them to their states and to where they think they can be constructive in getting things, uh, getting people back to doing things which they need to do in order to make a living. Dr. Gottlieb, whom we just spoke with, seemed to suggest that Georgia's governor was moving too fast. They're going to begin opening their economy this Friday with, as I mentioned earlier, fitness centers and bowling alleys, among other things, to be followed by restaurants a few days later. Is that a mistake? Well, it's the governor's decision. Uh, I, I am a huge fan of Dr. Gottlieb and Dr. Fauci, and I would be more inclined to accept their thoughts on this uh, as the health experts. But really, governors make these decisions, and they pay the price for making a bad decision. Uh, my view, personally, is that you don't need to start opening recreational activity yet, that you need to focus on activity that creates economic movement, uh, for people, uh, but not necessarily causes people to gather together. You know, this, this whole event has been very bifurcated. There are a lot of people in this country who can stay at home 
and work at home. And most of them are very all right, have higher levels of education. They can use computers. They can do their jobs from home. It's the people who have to physically go out and work that are in trouble. And there are certain physical jobs that you can do that don't involve mass congregation. For example, construction uh, in many instances isn't going to be involve a, a concentration of people. But there are other physical things like running a football game or, or running a bowling alley, I would think, that would cause people to gather too quickly uh, when the virus is still very virulent. Governor Gregg, it's great to have your insights. We'll talk to you again soon. I appreciate your time this evening. Thank you, Scott. That is Judd Gregg. He is the former senator and governor of the state of New Hampshire. A lot more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. For me to stay home and do nothing, it's, uh, it's just crazy. Next tonight, how one chef who has lost so much to the virus is fighting back. Plus, your questions for our financial advisors. Tonight, a special program dedicated to your goals, your fears, and your problems in the midst of this unprecedented market volatility. Before the break, photos from around the country on day 113 of the coronavirus crisis. for financial markets. At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Healthy Returns. CNBC's Virtual Summit is May 12th. For more information and to register, go to cnbcevents.com slash healthy returns. Welcome back. Here is the very latest on the virus tonight. The Senate did not reach a deal on the next coronavirus relief bill. But lawmakers set up a session tomorrow afternoon to work on legislation aimed at putting more money into the depleted small business fund. New Jersey's governor says hospitalizations are down and the spread of the virus is slowing in that state. New Jersey does have the second most cases in the country behind New York. And a survey by the National Restaurant Association says the industry has lost two thirds of its workers or eight million people. It also says the industry now on track to lose two hundred forty billion dollars by the end of the year. Well, more than a month ago, the pandemic closed both of Chef Rafael Aronca's New York restaurants, and last week he lost an employee to the virus. Now he's stepping up. 
I've been in the restaurant business for 30 years. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I was scared, lost, confused, depressed. For me to stay home and do nothing, it's just crazy. And seeing and hearing that all these doctors and nurses were out there risking their lives, that's exactly why I decided to help people at the hospital. They were cooking for the uh, White Plains Hospital. It gave me a reason to come to work and do something. We're doing eggplant parmigiana and uh, veal and beef polpettine. The precautions is masks, gloves. It's got to be individual packed. So, you know, each and every person can get their own meal. We pack the car. Then we drive to the hospital. They send a cart downstairs. We give it to them. Then it goes to the nurses and doctors. Please be safe. Take care of yourself. Stay strong. And thank you so much for all you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. That was Chef Rafaela Ronca tonight, stepping up. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report. Next up, members of CNBC's Advisors Council and Josh Brown answer your questions. With millions of Americans looking for advice and a path forward, we're here tonight to answer next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Coronavirus phase continue to spook the market. Truly a history-making week on Wall Street. Extending its losses from a 1,000-point drop on Monday. Daily point drops, they were big and they were severe. It could throw the United States into a recession. The noise is everywhere. The volatility is enough to baffle even veteran traders with nerves of steel. Americans are facing something we've never faced before. A killer virus and a stock market that's left millions of people in this country scarred for years to come. Tonight, we are answering your questions. Our CNBC Advisors Council is ready to go to set you on the path forward. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. So good to have you with us this evening. Americans have a lot of questions about their money tonight, and we're here to answer as many of them as we can. Josh Brown is a halftime report contributor. He's the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Josh, it's good to have you here this evening. I'm glad we're doing this. And I'm wondering in your own through your own eyes, what are you hearing from from your clients? What are the challenges that you're facing as an advisor? 
That's, you know, that, that's, that's such a great question to lead off with, Scott. And uh, for context, we work with about 900 households across the country, about uh, 17 client-facing advisors at my firm. And I asked them that question. And one of the recurring themes was people seem to be more concerned about their own health and the health of their families than they are about their money at this stage, which separates this recession and this bear market from all others that preceded it. Now, that won't last, and ultimately, people are going to look at how they're investing, how they're saving, um, and, and, and what they're doing, and the financial aspect is going to come more to the fore, and I think that's what we're going to try to do tonight is, is try to tackle some of those issues. So the good news is I brought uh, two of, in my opinion, uh, the most knowledgeable, accomplished financial advisors in America to help me uh, with some of these questions that were asked. I want to bring on Carolyn McClanahan from Life Partners. Carolyn is, in addition to being a financial advisor, also a medical doctor practicing, one of the few in the country, uh, and Lizetta Rainey Braxton. Uh, Lizetta is joining us from Brooklyn tonight. She works with the mass affluent and high net worth investors all over the country. Uh, the first question that we got, uh, guys, I want to get into right now, which is, is there an allocation that works across the board for more than one age group, more than one income? Um, is, is there any kind of general portfolio advice that we can discuss to get into this? Carolyn, what do you think about that question? Well, to me, the two most important factors that should drive an allocation is one, how long do you have before you have to use your money? And then number two, how much can you afford to lose? And so if you can't take a lot of risk because you need your money soon, you need a conservative allocation. And if you can let your money sit there forever and you don't mind watching it go up and down, you can be much more aggressive. But people who are early in retirement or just getting ready to start retirement, they, for the most part, need to be fairly conservative. Right. So it's not necessarily just about age. It's about when you're using the money and for what that should really drive the answer to that question. Um, Lizetta, what's your take when, when you get questions from people? I imagine you talk with people of all different generations. How do you answer that question when they say, well, how much how much uh, stock market is too much? How much bonds? How much cash? What, what kinds of guidelines do you give people to help them figure that out? It's very similar to what Carolyn has said about when you need the money, i.e. when you're going to start taking it out. And, and I also like to say this risk tolerance. You know, how do you respond to when the market does what it's going to do? Ups and downs. And right now we're in a down market. So do you throw your hands up in the air and say, wow, what a ride? Or do you curl up in a fetal position and say, my goodness, I'm never going to retire or, or not going to be able to get through retirement? Or do you say, oh, another day at the office? So that range of how you respond when you hear the news gives you an indication of how much you can really handle what we say risk, i.e. how much you can handle in stocks. So I like to marry that with their timeline, what their goals are, and really can, can they stomach this ups and downs and some, sometimes you know, there's software that helps that. And sometimes it's just the question, you know, will you be able to sleep tonight in the next couple of weeks, in the next few months, in the next couple of years, uh, waiting for the stock market to rebound? So I want to hear intimately what they feel about it as well. Yeah, so that that's such an important aspect of it. You know, people talk in terms of what's the optimal portfolio, but an optimal portfolio lives on software. We have to live with these portfolios in real life. And sometimes what's an optimal allocation is not livable. 
for the person that's actually going through that experience. Carolyn, what do you say to this idea that risk tolerance is a moving target? Meaning in the middle of a month like March, with the S&P 500 in the midst of a historic decline, people all of a sudden might answer risk tolerance questions with, well, I'm very conservative investor, it turns out. Um, but then yeah. fast forward, the market has a three-year return of 10% a year. All of a sudden, people's risk tolerance get amped up. How do you address that? Oh, it definitely changes. And so one way that we like to address it is we put portfolio losses in the realm of what's the real money that they would lose? Let's say somebody has a million-dollar portfolio. If you say, are you okay losing 12%? And they go, oh, that's, that's fine. I can do that. But when you say, well, that's $120,000, they're like, uh, uh, that's a lot of money. And so we hammer in, especially when times are good, we hammer in how much they have the potential to lose and can they stomach that. And one other way that we help them prepare, people who are actually living on their money, we make certain that they have at least five years of cash flow in fixed income so that when the market goes haywire, we can say to them, and it makes them feel so much better too, that you don't have to worry about this. You have at least five years of cash flow going forward. And then that prepares them for times like these. Lizetta, I want to get into one of the more technical questions. Um, I'm going I'm to read directly from a viewer. Um, started our Roth conversion strategy this year, retired and 58 years old, converting up to 24% until required minimum distributions. Uh, that sounds like it's a strategy to enable the children to inherit that IRA on a tax-free basis, front load the taxes now. Is that the type of thing that people should do when the market's fallen, the tax impact is less? Should they look at a strategy like that to lessen the burden on whomever might um, inherit those assets later? You, you mentioned it. It's, it's a strategy. The, there are a lot of factors that go into that strategy. You know, where you think tax rates are versus where you think they're going to be in the future. What does your income look like? So is your tax bracket less um, because you've decided to retire or um, unfortunately you got the cut? So you have to really kind of think about personally for this particular situation, uh, age, when you're making these withdrawals for the conversion, and also when you're thinking about the children going forward, more than likely, depending on their age, they could be even in a lower tax bracket. So while I would like to say this is absolutely the way certain people should go, I want them to be thinking about where tax rates are now, where they believe they are in the future, if they think they're low, what is your income bracket looks like vis-a-vis -vis what your children's bracket could look like and who would be better off uh, taking those, um, you know, those tax hits in terms of taxable income. We know that the Roth, once it's distributed, no big deal. The taxes have already been paid. And I guess that's one of the angles they're looking at. Those are absolutely the important considerations. Carolyn, here's somebody uh, with a 401k question. I can't pick and choose stocks. Any advice on funds would be great. How do you broach that topic? Someone trying to figure out what they're doing inside of a 401k. Well, it's really important first to make sure that you have a great 401k that has low cost funds, um, a, a lot of passive funds, index funds that have very, very low fees. If they, if your funds don't have low fees, talk to your employer, make sure that they um, start getting funds that do have low fees. 
And then it's important to make sure you're diversified. So if you don't have a lot of money, it makes it hard to diversify. Your fund probably has what's called a life cycle fund that may be a wise choice to use. And as you get more money, that's when it's really important for you to determine what's the right allocation for you and then use low cost funds within the 401k to meet that allocation. Great advice. Uh, I'm going to throw it back to Scott. We have so much more to come. Stick around, Scott. Where are we going next? Well, it was a timely conversation you were having, Josh, and and our, our guest tonight. Thank you. More of your questions are coming up next, plus the big changes in 401k rules due to the virus. Before the break, though, images from around the world on the 113th day of this pandemic. Hi, this is Jason from Lake Worth, Florida. Lately, I've heard a lot of advisors talk about taking profits and raising cash, but I've also heard others talk about putting cash to work by buying higher quality. What percentage of cash do you recommend in a portfolio? Good question. Welcome back with us tonight. Advisors Josh Brown, Lizetta Braxton and Dr. Carolyn McClanahan. Let's get right to that question. Josh Brown. So so my, my take on this is very simple. Professional investors um, enjoy a lot of advantages over individual investors, but this is one case where it's actually backward. The individual investor does not have to report quarterly performance to anyone. So the last thing they should be thinking about, the last thing when it comes to market volatility is trying to shy away from that. Market volatility is the source of future returns. So Jason sounds like he's a relatively younger investor. I consider myself to be somewhat young. Um, and so what I'm not doing is is uh, worried about how much cash I can have in a retirement account. My cash savings are elsewhere in the bank. So in, a, in an investment account, I'm trying to upgrade and buy quality stocks. I'm trying to make sure that I'm adding a consistent amount of money every month. And the good news is with my own money, I only answer to myself and I only answer to myself decades from now when I can actually use that money in retirement. Carolyn, how would you how would you answer that question of Jason's? Oh, you're spot on. To me, cash is for savings accounts and in your investment accounts, you should have an investment policy. Jason being young, I bet he has the um, wherewithal that he could take a lot of risk. And so his stock allocation should be high. And right now, every bit of savings that he has should probably be going to his stock allocation. So people should not be sitting on cash in their investment account. When an older person has an investment account and they're using monthly withdrawals, that's about the only time you would have cash in there. You would have enough to meet the withdrawals that they have to take throughout the year. Yeah, so I, th I think what's important, Carolyn, is that using this term, they can take more risk. A lot of times people conflate volatility with risk. But when you're thinking about 20 and 30 year money, the real risk is running out much later 
when you can't earn more and replace it. The risk is not that you're going to buy a mutual fund and it's going to be down 10% a month later. Can, can you explain a little bit about why that's so important for people to set their mind on that concept? Yeah, you're exactly right. So when, when you're invested in the market, the reason that you're invested in the market is because companies are out there doing all sorts of things to try to make money. Some are going to fail. Some are going to do fantastic. And overall, through the years, companies tend to do well, and that's why stocks go up. So if you have a 20 to 30 year time frame, you can weather, weather the bad times when the market goes bad. I mean, like right now, it's from coronavirus. And so it's not that the companies were doing poorly in and of themselves. And once we figure out how to get through this mess of a virus, then the economy can get back on track. So risk is all about um, how much you can afford to lose in any period of time. And young people have a long period of time so they can take more risk. And ideally, in the long run, it's going to make a lot more money for them. Well, we also have our own personal finance guru with us tonight, Sharon Epperson, with us to explain some recent changes in 401k plans. Sharon, good evening. Good evening, Scott. There have been some major changes to retirement accounts based on the CARES Act, and there are a couple to keep in mind. One impacts retirees. By waiving required minimum distributions or RMDs for this year. Now, typically, when you're in your 70s, you're required to take a certain amount out of your 401k or your IRA as an RMD every year. Now you get a break. You don't have to take that money out until 2021. The other provisions deal with 401k loans and withdrawals, raising the loan limit and actually making distributions penalty free. But these 401k changes aren't automatic. It is up to your employer to put these changes into practice. If you want to take out a 401k loan, you can now borrow up to $100,000 or 100% of the balance, whatever is um, less there. And the previous loan amount was $50,000. And you can defer payments for up to one year. But you have to keep in mind here that many plans will let you pay back the loan within five years. But if you lose your job, that money is going to have to be paid back a lot faster. Another new provision and the more popular option for tapping your 401k so far, according to those in the industry, would let you take a distribution of up to $100,000 or 100% of your balance, whichever is less, from your IRA or your 401k. Now, you don't have to pay the typical 10% early withdrawal penalty if you're under 59 and a half, and you'll get three years to pay taxes on this money. And if you re pay that money, you won't have to pay taxes on it at all. But in order to make this penalty-free withdrawal, you or your spouse or partner has to have been diagnosed with COVID-19, or you personally have to show financial hardship by reduced hours, having been furloughed or laid off. And that, some in the industry say, is a caveat that many don't realize, and it's making more, it more difficult for some families that are facing financial hardship to qualify. Sharon, we appreciate that. Josh, Thank you want to Sharon. pick it up? I want to go to Lizetta. Yeah, I want to go to Lizetta on this. So um, we, we've, we've done such a good job. I mean, we could always do better. But in this society, we've done such a good job at hammering the idea of saving into people's heads. But every once in a while, there is an emergency. And I think this would qualify for millions of people right now. Um, how do you counsel people who come to you and say, look, I just need money right now. 
I understand there are taxes. I understand there are penalties. What's the least dumb thing I could do to access some of my savings so that I can get through this period? How do you help people with that question? First of all, I want them to be clear about how much it takes to run their household, just like a business. So if you say it takes me, let's say, $5,000 a month to live comfortably, you may be in a situation where you're losing your job. So at least we can quantify how much cash flow you need to come in. And then we can look at how much you need to take out if you have to go the route of the loan. You know, considering the loans, you are both the lender and the borrower. So the nice thing is that you're paying yourself back back based on the terms given by your employer. So be sure that you know exactly when you're taking this loan out from yourself, what interest rate you're paying your account back. In essence, that's your return. So while we would love to see that money continue to to grow and get that compounded interest, like you said, these are circumstances for which people need cash flow. Maybe they didn't have the six months of expenses, three to six months. Uh, maybe their job loss and trying to get back into the market is harder than what they expected. We just want to minimize the exposure or minimize the amount of money that has to be taken out in a very prudent way by just knowing what's needed and then knowing that this is a resource that's available for which you're paying yourself back. That's really, that's really great advice. So you're not saying let's come up with a number and then figure out how to spend it. You're saying, what do I really need? And then let's figure out where we can get it from at, at the least possible cost. One, one aspect of this, Carolyn, in, in the 30 seconds or so we have left, uh, you will be paying taxes on this distribution um, right. at your ordinary income rate. So that's a really important consideration, right? Right, that is. And realize, though, you could spread that out over three years. You have the choice to pay it all in one year or spread it over three. So you have to look at what your future income is going to be versus should it be, is it better to be taxed on it all right now? That, that, that's really great information. Sharon, I want to thank you for bringing us that report. Scott, what are we doing next? We have more questions coming up next. We'll be back right after this. All right. Welcome back. We got a question from a viewer asking, how should an investor measure success? Let's say over one year or five years when they're investing on their own or if they're using a fiduciary. So for simplicity, perhaps a high risk tolerance young investor or uh, a low risk tolerance older investor. What, what are the right ways to say I'm doing a good job, my, my, my portfolio and my financial plan are coming along nicely? Um, and how do you know when you're behind? Lizetta, how do you answer that question? Um, particularly now, the nice thing with my clients, I'm able to say, look, see how your financial plan is at work for you in good times and in bad times. So does it pass the test of your financial plan as you're working with this financial planner over years? The other piece is what are what are your goals? So if we're measuring kind of what you want to have during retirement, running the projections as well, are you able to set that money aside and stay on track as an example, whether it be college funds um, that are invested in a 529 plan or if it's in your retirement account, the key is making sure we're monitoring cash flows, putting into your um, your goals and then monitoring, checking to see how we're coming along the way. So are you giving people um, a probability of success in, let's say, percentage terms 
in order to give them that assurance? And and is that helpful to keep them away from looking at day to day market fluctuation, for example? Well, that was a lot passed as a financial planner. You know, one of the tools that we like a lot is Monte Carlo simulations, uh, just to kind of give thousands of scenarios of what possibly can happen to give the range of best case, worst case scenario. And that's what the beauty of technology will do for you if you understand what's behind these numbers and be able to articulate uh, what this means to you as an everyday person. So yes, I use those tools. They're very common for financial planners and we study the, the, the thinking, the thought leadership behind the tools that we use and be able to explain that to clients so they feel empowered as well with their own money. Carolyn, how do you how do you help people gauge how well you're doing for them as their fiduciary? Um, what, what are some of the signposts along the way that you can point to and say to someone, this is going well and here's how we know? Well, the number one thing we do for our clients every year is we review how much money they're actually spending because the most the the biggest predictor of whether you're going to run out of money is how much you're spending. It's not going to be your investment return. And so making certain that people are spending what they think they're spending. And then we look at we do projections based on how much they have at that moment and how much they're spending, what it looks like in the future. And what's been really fun this time, well, if anything's fun this time around going in, in, in around in this crazy world is that we're doing projections now for clients in retirement. And even given the whole market upheaval, we're able to show them that, hey, we've already baked market upheavals into your portfolio and you're still doing fine. And we're encouraging them to keep spending. It's, it's, it's people who have the money, they're going to rescue the economy. And so people who are doing fine need to unfreeze. And we show them that they can do that. And I think that's you can't get any more successful than that, knowing that you can keep living the life that you've been living. So this, this is my final question, and, and this one actually comes directly from me. And it's a question that I'm talking with financial advisors about all over the country. And I'd like to get with both of you on this. Um, and my question is this. Many of our clients understand that none of us can really answer things about when will the economy reopen? When will it get back to normal? We all have guesses, some of them educated. But I think why clients ask that question is because they're looking for um, assurance and encouragement from their financial advisors, not necessarily black and white answers to the unknowable. So I wanna ask you guys, and we'll start with you, Lizetta, what, what is the encouragement, what is the thing that you're saying to people that you find turns around some of the conversations that maybe begin with a little bit of worry? So I show them um, a slide that pretty much shows, you know, over the, say century, hundred years or so, we've had more expansions than we had recessions. That's something to stay positive about. And then also when we're looking at the trajectory, even for the last you know, 30 years or so, we're seeing an upward trend in the stock market. Now we know past performance, no guarantee of future performance, but, but history um, has shown that there has been rebounds. So I keep them focused on you made it through the 2008 housing crisis. You know, we stayed in we saw, sought the course um, for those who may be closer to to retirement. Like Carolyn has said, often there may be some, you know, fewer adjustments. But for the most part, we're picking these things in along the way. So uh, thank goodness Carol a lot of our clients have weathered some storms 
uh, before as well. And Carolyn, how would how would you answer that? How how would you answer that conundrum that we're all facing right now? How do you make people feel better? Well, so it's going to sound so depressing what I actually say, but it does make people feel better. First off, we do make sure that they know that they're okay, which we just talked about. But I say from the Hindu god Shiva, from all destruction, may great things be reborn. And there's so much craziness that's happened in the world and it's shown all the problems within the system. But now we can go forward and we can fix those problems to create a stronger community, stronger country, and a stronger economy. So they seem very excited about what the future holds. All right. Thanks, everybody. It's been a great evening. Josh, thank you. Ladies, thank you very much. For all of us at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. American Greed is now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.